So church, we're in the book of Colossians as we go through Colossians 3 and study this passage and where Paul is exhorting this minority church to put to death the remaining sin in their lives. One version says, put to death the old man with its members, which must be pitilessly slain. So put to death the deeds of the flesh that remain as believers so that you can experience the joy and peace and wonder of Christ and be used of him to impact others in your community and here in Colossae or here in our community, in our neighborhoods, on our college campuses, to the glory of the Lord. And so as you remember the gospel, Paul says, the gospel foundation, he says in verse 5 of chapter 3, put to death therefore. That's a, therefore is an adverb which modifies or qualifies a verb or a, another adverb. Put to death therefore, based upon what I've said. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. And he says once again in verse 8, but now you must put them away. Uh, put to death, therefore. You must put them away. And we come down to verse 12 where he says, put on then, another adverb, put on then as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. So first of all, he says in verse 5, very quickly, put to death, therefore, sexual immorality and impurity and evil desires and passions and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put these to death. Get, get rid of them. He says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, he says in verse 7, when you were living in them. But now, now in the present context, you must put them all away. And he says, anger, and wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and, and don't lie to one another. You must get, get rid of these things because you're new people in Christ. And so he talks about being new people in Christ and walking in the power of the Spirit and being filled with the reality of Christ. And then he launches out into the next section. We'll be looking at it in the next few weeks. But he says, he says, this is how you live in relationship in the home, in the marketplace, with one another. These relationships that are a carryover of your life in Christ with the end result of impact in your culture. He says in chapter 4, verse 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the very same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as if it were with salt, so that you can know how to respond to everyone. So, so the, the end result of knowing the gospel and putting to death the deeds of the flesh is to build relationships in such a way that they glorify the Lord and you can speak to those around you as you're watchful in prayer and you pray for an open door and you speak with grace and diplomacy and kindness to those around you. So, so he says, put to death these things, these sensual things, because they wage war against your soul. Put these things to death because they limit your joy and your usefulness in the kingdom of God. You see, sin that is unconfessed and unforsaken blunts your life, blunts your witness, it makes it of minimal effect. 
And that's why in 2 Timothy, the apostle Paul is talking about in a large house, there are gold and silver vessels and some of wood and earthenware and some for noble purposes and some for ignoble, before plumbing, ignoble. He says, therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, verse 21, he will be a vessel sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So, see, we, we want to put sin to death. We all struggle with that. Put it to death. There is nothing much more frustrating in the kitchen. I'm not a guy that spends much time in the kitchen, but sometimes we will cook a roast or a tenderloin, and my wife will say, can you slice it? I'll say, I can do that. And so you go in the kitchen, you pull the knife out of the block, and you start cutting it, and you realize it's not sharp. And so it's your muscle against the grain of the beef. You just kind of down. And she comes up, well, you didn't cut it very well. So look, I was thinking it's in sharp. How you can cut with the sharp thing? And it's not sharp enough, the old adage says, to cut through hot butter. That's what sin does. It blunts our effectiveness. It limits our usefulness. It short circuits our joy. I want to be used of the Lord. I want to have the joy of the Lord. And that's why in verse 8 he says, but now you must put these away. Once again, it says anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. Don't do anything that limits your usefulness in the kingdom of God. Here's a definition for discipleship. If I can read it, I think it is. What is a disciple? A disciple is a forgiven sinner who is learning Christ in repentance and faith. A, Christ, a disciple is a learning disciple, a, a, a forgiven sinner who's learning Christ in repentance and faith. And I read that and I go, am I really learning Christ in repentance and faith? Am I sharp in the master's hands? Let me give you just a couple of verses on learning Philippians 4 says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Be a learner. It says in Ephesians 4, he says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Be a learner. Titus 3, verse 14, and, and let our people learn, see, to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. In other words, if, if, you're, if you're not going to be unfruitful, we must be people who learn. So we come to this passage this morning, and we're going to look at it, and I'm going to give you my thesis, and hopefully you'll agree with it. He says, put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and loved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Forbear with one another and forgive one another. Next week is forbearing and forgiving. But we're going to cover the first five today. Uh, put on these, a compassionate heart is feelings of sympathy for other people. Kindness is hearing and responding to the needs of others. Humility is having a correct estimate of ourselves, biblically speaking. 
Meekness. Meekness is hard to get hold of. I, you know, meekness, it, people think meekness is weakness. It is not. It is strength under control. But here's a quote from a guy that's not known for his meekness. This is March Madness. This is Bobby Knight, coached at Indiana and Texas Tech. He says, the meek may well inherit the earth, but they rarely get rebounds. So, Bobby Knight. But meekness is strength under control. Let me tell you, I was, I mean, it's hard to define meekness, but I read something this week that I thought, yeah, that works. The writer said that, that, that meekness is letting other people say about us what we acknowledge to be about ourselves before God. Whoa. Meekness is allowing other people to say about us what we acknowledge to be true before God. And then he says patience. And, and patience is, is just, you're not easily provoked. Now, I'll just tell you that I'm, I struggle with all of these, but probably patience. And what I want you to see is, is this, this is a seamless garment, not a patchwork. In other words, you can't say, well, I'm going to do compassion and kindness, and I'm going to not worry about meekness and humility and patience. Or I'm going to worry about patience and, and humility, but not meekness and kindness and whatever, mercy. I, you, you can't do that. They hang together. They're interchangeable. So I, these things are patience. So the other night, I confess to you my sin. I went to the Low Country Pregnancy Center banquet. Uh, it was a wonderful experience uh, standing for the uh, sanctity of human life and protecting life in the womb and encouraging mothers and fathers, especially the mothers who are having these babies. It was a wonderful night. And I sat at the table with people that I really enjoy and left just going, this, this was great. And it was, it, it's closed in a timely, it wasn't late. So I thought, this is good. I can get home, get in bed because I get up real early on Friday morning to get ready for man to man. And, and so I go to the parking lot in North Charleston Coliseum and we're pulling out and we get behind this guy. I think he was driving a hybrid. Um, strike one. Yeah, so I get behind this guy, and uh, he's going about two miles an hour. And, you know, you're in the parking lot. You can't pass him because there's trees and barriers. You just can't pass him. It's, he's going two miles. I thought, well, what are you doing? I mean, come on, I, I'm in a hurry. You know, I've just been to this great, great experience. So we're, we're, and so he turns the corner, and I thought, man. Please don't take a right in the main road. Please don't take a right. Guess what? He took a right. I take a right. And so the cars are going by on the left lane. I can't pass him. And I'm going, he's, he's going seven miles an hour, eight miles an hour. I'm going, what is wrong? And so finally there's a break in the traffic and I pass him. And my wife says to me, do not look back. <laughs> I looked back. He was texting. Listen. Don't text when you drive. If you do, I hope God judges you or the South Carolina State Troopers do. I mean, it just drives me crazy. And so he's texting. He's probably texting, how do you drive this car? And that type of thing. <laughs> but I, I go by him and I, I, I cut in. I didn't have to cut in much. He's going eight miles an hour. You know, I blew by him at 15 miles an hour. And, and, uh, and I thought, how silly can you be? You just left this banquet. We've heard about Christ changing people and how we are standing together under the banner of Jesus. And it's a wonderful night and you've lost all your joy. It happens. So, so I want to say, as you look at this, here's my thesis. The way we approach this is not to say, to take this list and say, okay, I, I, I want to be, I, I be more humble. 
I'm going to think, be more humble. Be, be more humble. Come on, soul, self, be humble. Be, be, be humble. And so you start thinking about humility and think, well, you know, the Lord has been good to me. You start thinking about your situation. You go, for example, the Lord has been good to me. Um, I went to a very good school. I went to a school that was, you know, some of you went to good schools. You may say, you know, there are eight Ivy League schools. You know, you got Princeton, Dartmouth, Yale, Harvard, Cornell, Columbia, Penn, and one other, and, and the Citadel. The Citadel's considered to be a at-large Ivy League school. Or, or you, you, may, you may say, well, you know, the, the Lord's blessed my marriage. You know, I, we could lead a marriage seminar two days out of the week. We're really doing pretty good here. Or our kids are doing pretty good. Or like whatever. And, and so you start thinking about that. And then, there's no humility in that. Or you think, Lord, I, I need to be more meek. And then the thought hits me sometimes. It's hard to be meek when you're always right. I don't know if you have that experience. But, but, but see, to me, uh, the key to living out this seamless garment is to be swallowed up in the greatness of the gospel of Jesus. And I'm going to try to show you that out of the text. Just three points. So to be swallowed up by the greatness of Christ. Number one, I must be continually renewed in my thinking. I've got to be a learner. Once again, disciple is, is someone who's constantly learning as he walks in faith and repentance. Uh, I've got to be renewed in my mind. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 8. But now you must put them all away. And then he says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Being renewed. And church, listen, we are renewed as we prayerfully, worshipfully receive the word of God. There's a book that was printed years ago, maybe 20 years ago, and it wasn't, it's out of print, it didn't sell well, unfortunately. It's by a guy named Edmund Clowney from Westminster Seminary. It's entitled Christian Meditation. And it's, it's only 80, 90 pages, but it is so good. Uh, I heard about it, read about it two months ago, decided to order it and got it. Again, it was, had to get a used copy. But, but he, he taught, he's really talking about biblical meditation versus Eastern mysticism. The book of Colossians addresses people who were involved in a spurious movement where they said, you really do not have to have content. You have to have magical words or incantations that open your mind to the God who cannot be defined. That's exactly what Eastern mysticism says. Eastern mysticism says you sit in the lotus position, some of them do, and you say a word and you empty your mind. They'll say, yeah, just be quiet and empty your mind and breathe deeply. And there's nothing wrong with deep breathing, but, 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 but the Bible says, fill your mind with the grandeur and greatness of the triune God. Fill your mind with the things of Christ. And so the, the church of Colossae was being told, there are magic words. You don't really learn things. You're just, you're just ushered into the presence of the God who cannot be found with these magic words. And that's exactly what Clowney's talking about today. And he says this, which is a self-evident statement, but I want you to just look at it and think about it. He says, biblical meditation is the form of thought that is appropriate to revealed mystery. See, Jesus is revealed mystery. And the Bible defines Jesus. Colossians 1 that he is before all things, and he made all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of his body, the church. 
So, so, so biblical meditation is a form of thought that is appropriate to reveal mystery. If the mystery were not revealed, thought would not be possible. That's just a basic statement, but think about it. If the mystery had not been revealed, we couldn't think thoughts about the true truth, who is Jesus. So I, I back up and he talks about this book. He says we need to meditate or mutter the Word of God. We need to take an index card and, and write down a key verse on an index card and, 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 and put it on the fridge or, or walk around with it in our wallet and pull it out. And we mutter it, we meditate, we think through it. That we really think the Word of God. We, we get it into our souls and our lives. Now, and I'm all for Bible reading, but, but there's, there's a difference between Bible reading and really getting the Word in your heart. I, I can read something, and what did you read an hour ago? Well, yeah, I can kind of sort of, but if I, if I really think about it. So I would plead with you to, to mutter the Word of God. Because God's Word, as it gets in our life by the power of the Holy Spirit, changes us. And that's why in verse 16, Paul says this in chapter 3. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In other words, Paul says, sing it, think it, mutter it, write poetry, get it in your heart. He says, that's what the scripture does. Let me give you a couple of examples. Next week we'll preach on forgiveness. Listen, it is impossible. Okay? It is impossible to let a grudge rule your heart if you're reading and applying and singing and taking in the word of God. You have to go back to the cross and back to forgiveness. That's next week. But, but you cannot be a grudge holder and take this in your life. This changes you. As a man, a husband, you cannot withhold affection from your wife and read the Bible. Instead, you can't. I've tried. Seriously. You get upset, so I'm not, I'm not going to do anything until she apologizes. Well, that's not your call. That's the Holy Spirit's call in her life. And so because if you read the Bible, it says husbands love your wife like Jesus loved the church. Does Jesus wait for us to, 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 to? No. He always initiates the love relationship. Husbands love your wives and live with them as, the, as a physically weaker partner, 1 Peter 3. And as a co-heir of the grace of God, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. In other words, if you're at odds with your spouse and you don't love her and serve her and care for her, and you manipulate and browbeat her, you don't want to pray because you're not right with God. It's just the way it is. You cannot read the Bible and be someone, as, as a husband, who withholds affection from your bride. You can't. We have wonderful elders in our church, and they will say to me frequently, we need to preach on stewardship because people don't understand the joy of giving. And, we just not, and they're absolutely right. Uh, we need to preach on the importance of tithing and that how Jesus talked about giving all the time. I said, you're right. And, and so I, once a year I try to preach three or four sermons on, on stewardship. kind of, sort of. But here, here's my conviction too. My conviction is that if, if people really take the Bible and really read it, and think through it, 
they'll be servants. They'll, they'll be givers. Because they'll see where the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. That they'll get a, a place like 1 Peter 6 that says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. In this way, they'll lay up a firm foundation for themselves for the coming age. Wow. C command them who are rich in this present world. Don't, don't be arrogant or to put your hope in wealth that is so uncertain. You know, wealth is uncertain. Life is uncertain. God is not. Eternity is coming. It's glorious. And we're going to stand before God. I, I don't know about you. I, I think I do know about you. Uh, 2017 for my little stock portfolio of my mutual funds was a very good year. I mean, it was a good year. And uh, if I could get in a time machine and go to Friday lunch, and I don't bet, but I would bet on a team called the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. I was 501. I just dropped a couple thousand bucks in. I, I, my tithe check today would be huge. But can't do that. But it's a very good. But see, wealth changes. This year may not be a good year. Um, my doctor's here. Physical every year. I had a physical a few months ago. I'm doing okay. Very healthy. Things are working. I sleep well. I can work out. I'm enjoy life, things are good. You know what? That can change. Boom. Can it? It can change. God doesn't change. Once again, we need to be people who take the Scripture and know it. So point number one, if I'm going to be a person of, of compassionate heart and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, I've got to continually grow in my knowledge of who Jesus is in my life and what he's done. And as I do that, I'll find my identification in him. That's, I mentioned this last week in verse 11, but it just, it's, to me, verse 11 is just a mind-boggling statement. Paul says, here, here, here in this church, he says to Colossae and Lystra, here, here, there is no Jew and Gentile. There's no circumcised and uncircumcised. There's no barbarian and Scythian, slave or free. In other words, there, there's no primary identification with your religious affiliation, with your ethnicity, with your economic standing, or with your cultural standing. I thought you were sitting there, and, and maybe you're a Gentile, and you're surrounded by a lot of people that are Jews, and really, even though they're Jewish believers, they're, they, have, they, they, they kind of treat you very gingerly, and, and, and you feel like maybe the odd man out, and all of a sudden you hear the, this letter being read in church, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, and you go, wow, that's cool. That's really cool. Or maybe you're, maybe you're a Scythian. A Scythian was somebody from northern Greece who they were known to be uneducated thieves. And Paul says, there's no Scythians here because we're all one in Jesus. Jesus is all that counts. And you go, I have dignity. I have dignity. Or a barbarian. You know, the Greeks made fun of barbarians because they couldn't speak well. They couldn't enunciate their words. And they seemed to be poorly educated. And to be called a barbarian means that you have no education background. And so there's no barbarians here. We're all one in Jesus. You go, 
Wow. And then he says, and if you're on the lower rung of the slave scale and your only property, hear me, there is no slave or free man in the church of the Lord Jesus. We are all one. And all of a sudden you go, I have dignity. And so, so if, I, if I'm going to put on this seamless garment, church, I've got to understand that my primary identification is found in Christ. You know, some of us uh, have wonderful family trees. Some of us do not. Uh, there's a one gracious young woman in our church, and a few years ago I was with her before she got married, and her maiden name is Booth, B-O-O-T-H. And so I said to her, I said, you know, uh, Booth, don't hear that name very often. Said, are, are you related to... Uh, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, a godly man from England, godly man. You see the Salvationists, you know, today at Christmas, and, and many of them still preach the gospel of grace, but William Booth was the man, a godly man. She said, well, yeah, I'm related to William Booth. I said, unbelievable. Then I thought, Booth, Booth, John Wilkes Booth. I said, are you related to John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated President Lincoln in April of 1865? And she said, yes, we are. And so, you know, you go to the family get-together, and you've got pictures of William Booth and John Wilkes. And you go, I'm going to talk about John Wilkes Booth, not William Booth. But we've all got that in our family. Quick story about my family. My, my uh, dad, his mom had 11 siblings and 12 kids, and so they all got married and had a lot of children. So my dad had lots of cousins, and they all did well. They were tenant farmers, basically, but if they'd had the chance, there's a smart gene in that family that didn't get passed down to some of us. And uh, they were hard workers and bright. And, but there was one cousin named Vance Jr., and Vance Jr. spent many, many months on a free vacation paid by the North Carolina Department of Corrections. He, he was just, he was a thief. He would steal anything that wasn't nailed down, and he was an embarrassment to the whole family. He'd go in for a year and get out for two, three months, steal stuff, go back in. It wasn't major stuff. It wasn't a Ponzi scheme where he, you know, stole from retirement funds. He just was, he's just a thief. And they were embarrassed about him and just go, oh my gosh. And so, I was 14, and I'm 15, and my, my dad has a brother named Uncle, named, excuse me, Leonard. I called him Uncle Leonard. And so I said, Uncle Leonard, I said, what, what is it with, with, with your cousin, Vance Jr.? He's back in prison. He said, I need to tell you something, Buster. He said, Vance Jr. is your daddy's cousin. He is not mine. <laughs> and uh, I went, you know, slow in the intake. I said, oh, oh, I've got that. So uh, we've all got that. But see, when you come to Christ, you're a known your primary identification is, I belong to the Lord. It supersedes family. It supersedes culture. It supersedes ethnicity. It supersedes economic interest. Stories told about a couple going into the back of a jewelry store, husband and wife that they owned. And it was late at night. They were going back to get some stuff. And as they went in, a thief was coming out and almost knocked them over. He had stolen all the diamonds there and hundreds of thousands of diamonds, dollars in diamonds. And so uh, as he knocked them down, his... They, they recognized him, and he said, I can't believe you saw me. I said, I'm, I'm going to have to kill you because I don't want to go to prison. 
And so he says, he points the gun at that, the wife, and he says, before I kill you, what is your name? She says, my name is Mary. He said, oh, I can't kill you. My mama's name is Mary. And she's the most wonderful woman I've ever known. I can't kill you. And she points the gun to the husband and says, what's your name? He says, it's Kenneth, but my friends call me Mary, you know? <laughs> and uh, so, so the, the issue, listen, the issue is, the issue is we are children of the resurrected Jesus. That's our primary identification. And when you get hold of that, then the wardrobe falls in place. Thirdly, very quickly, he says this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and loved. So, so God's chosen ones. There is a doctrine called election. Uh, the Baptist Faith and Message right here says this, that the election is the gracious purpose of God according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. Election means that, that when I was dead in my sin, God spoke life into my being. Somebody preached the gospel to me, and God, by the Spirit, came into my life, and that message was energized, and I believed when I was 19 years of age. It is, it is a glorious mystery. But he says, he appeals to, he says, understand, you are eternally loved by God. You are, you are chosen, you are holy, which means you've been set apart, and you're loved of God, eternally embraced by God with a strong embrace. And so understand the greatness of your salvation. Put on then these character graces. And people say, well, you know, this is a, this is a doctrine that's hard to understand. It is hard understand, but it's glorious. It's cool. You're dead, God speaks to you. You're dead, God breathes life into you. He loves you with an everlasting love, security, joy, and confidence. Let me just read a few verses out of John 6. John 6, Jesus says, believe, believe, believe. Listen to these verses. This is the work, verses verse 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believe in me, he says. John 6, Verse 40, for, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So if you've never trusted in Christ, believe in him. Look to him. He is a sin bearer who died on the cross as your substitute. Believe. Chapter 6, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It says, my body on the cross for your sin. Believe. He also says this. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. In verse 37, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So, so, so as we take the gospel to the, our three people we're praying for, as we pray for relatives and, and neighbors and friends, our call is, believe and, and understanding that as the gospel goes out, the Holy Spirit comes and convicts and God does his work. But people are saved as the gospel is communicated and the Holy Spirit convicts. 
and his eternal purposes are made true in the hearts of men and women. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive in Jesus. All glory goes to him. And when you get hold of that, then you say, God, you look at compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. You say, God, I want that to mark my life because that is what marked the life of Jesus. So I'm sitting with my wife this week and I say, let's just rehearse. Let's just rehearse the names of people we know and love. Some have gone to be with the Lord who were compassionate. We started rehearsing names. Okay, how about kind people? How about humble people? Boom, boom, boom. Meek people. Patient people. Every name we listed, every name we listed were people who loved the gospel of grace, understood the love of the triune God, and gladly underscored the fact that their primary identity was not economic or ethnic or religious or cultural, but it was all about Jesus. Now, when the gospel gets hold of you, I really believe you change. You change by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day and for the tender mercies of the cross. And thank you that when we who know you as Savior uh, were, were, were dead, you spoke the gospel through friends, through a track, through a broadcast, through our best friend in my case. And we thank you for that. And we thank you that when that gospel was spoken, you by your sovereign kingship worked in hearts. So thank you for that. And I pray that we would be people who speak out the gospel of grace, that we would love people, that we would be used of you as sharpened instruments to impact our culture, our neighborhoods, our campuses, our workplace. In Jesus' name, amen.